Hello, and welcome to At the Back of Your Mind, the Inspire the Mind podcast that brings you the science on mental health with a no-nonsense attitude. I'm one of your hosts, Juliette, together with my scientist friends, Carolina and Mariam. We're often joined by fabulous guests, so grab a cup of tea and let's dive into what exactly is at the back of your mind today. Hi, Mariam. How are you guys? How are we? Very good. Very excited about today. Yes, we're very excited about today's episode. We're going to bring to you a topic that isn't the easiest, but we will have a great guest later on to talk to us about it a bit more. The topic we want to tell you about today is about severe mental illness. In particular, we want to dive into psychosis. I feel like psychosis is one of those things that, you know, you hear... But unless you're in the space, you don't quite know what it is. And it can sound quite scary. Yes. Yeah. And I know you girls have some nice definitions for our listeners. Yes, we do. Well, I think it's also important to like, I think, talk about psychosis before we talk about anything else and what it actually is, right? Because it's a word that gets thrown around so much. Psychosis usually comprises different types of symptoms. And it's usually when you experience hallucinations. So, for example, if you perceive things, either you see them, you smell them, you hear them. So you hear things that are not actually part of reality. Or you can also have delusions. So that's also a symptom of psychosis. And a delusion is when you have a delusion, you have a belief, a very strong belief that nobody else shares. You can have what is called like delusion of grandeur. Grandiose. Yeah, exactly. Where you think you're like super important, a lot more important than you actually are in the real world. Like a celebrity. Yeah, exactly. Or a prophet. Or a prophet, yes. And you can also have disorganized thinking and speech as part of psychosis. So that's when your your thoughts are like racing almost like faster than you can catch them. Um, or you can have flight or ideas when the ideas that you have in your thoughts, you just go from one idea to another. Your mind jumps to them very, very quickly. And they might not be interlinked or make any sense whatsoever. And then this kind of symptoms cause a lot of distress and they they need medical attention right it's it's very difficult for someone that has active symptoms of psychosis to deal with the symptoms without medical help and medical attention yeah yeah so I think it's good to summarize that psychosis is when one's experiences or thoughts are not aligned with reality and they feel very real to the person experiencing them it's a lot more complex I think, to to treat than other mental health conditions like anxiety. Because in a lot of cases, you will need, obviously, therapy, but you will also need uh, medication. And as we've talked about, whether it's for psychosis, depression or anxiety, it sometimes takes time to find the right medication. But because you are perceiving things that are not part of reality, and that might be distressing, Right. So hallucinations don't always have themes that are very pleasant, so they can be very stressful. And that's why it's important to, as you said, Carolina, to get the right medical attention. I think psychosis sometimes is confused with schizophrenia. 
and mm-hmm. schizophrenia has some features of psychosis or could have. Can you tell our listeners the difference and what's in common between schizophrenia and psychosis? So they are related, as you said, and some of the symptoms that people experience in psychosis, so psychotic symptoms, you might also have them in schizophrenia, such as hallucinations, delusions, etc. However, these in schizophrenia would be called positive symptoms. So symptoms that add something that isn't there in your life before. But schizophrenia... Yeah, not positive like good. Yeah, no, not like, oh, great, love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Positive but, as in it's adding. Yeah. And then schizophrenia also comes with those negative symptoms that, that take away something that most people would have in their life. So that can manifest with a lack of interest in things, a disconnect from emotions, not having a lot of interest in social contacts so or avoiding social contacts a little bit. So th- those are, for example, some negative symptoms that are part of schizophrenia. So schizophrenia, let's say it, it has, it encompasses some feature of psychosis, but it also has other symptoms that characterize it. One of the reasons it's, it's so difficult with psychosis is there's a lot of different causes and a lot of different things that could bring it on as well. I think one of the ones that's more people hear of more is like drug-induced psychosis and you always get warned you know if you're you're smoking weed for example that could bring on psychosis and it also varies between age groups as well yes yes so as you said recreational drugs are one of the main causes of psychosis cannabis is one of one of those big ones especially if they are very strong in something called thc but also other things like injury like a head injury or mercury poisoning or Alzheimer's, Parkinson's can also uh, lead to people experiencing hallucinations or delusions. Then you have things like abuse or trauma, especially childhood trauma. And very importantly, experiences of racism have been led with psychosis. We also have alcohol, smoking, could also be related to developing uh, psychosis. And lastly, prescribed medication. So it could be the side effect of some prescribed drugs or it could be an experience as you come off uh, psychiatric drugs. One thing that I wanted to to let our listeners know and to get them thinking is that there was actually a 29% increase in the number of people referred to a mental health service for their first suspected episode of psychosis between 2019 and 2021 that's a 29 increase and actually if you look at the data more granularly inner city and more deprived areas are associated with higher numbers of people with psychosis and also and this shouldn't be news to anyone but I'll I'll repeat it anyway there are higher proportions of people from black and minority ethnic groups in contact with secondary mental health services which means that uh, assigned to a psychosis sub Cluster. So this actually means that there are higher diagnoses and psychosis in, in black and ethnic minority groups versus the rest of the population. And this really brings up a discussion about the cost of living crisis, coming out of a pandemic, economic turmoil, political turmoil um, in the UK. And this cannot be ignored. Now, Mariam, you have some stats for us. Um, do you have to yeah. share them with our listeners? Yes. So we'll we'll go with the the closer one. In 2022, 
Um, as I was saying earlier, there's differences between age groups. So 18.4% of young people aged 17 to 24 were in the at-risk group for psychotic-like experiences. So that means that they reported two or more experiences. And as of 2020, so Mental Health First Aid England reported that 6% of the population say they've experienced at least one symptom of psychosis. And researchers have said, again, 9.8% of children and young people have experienced symptoms of psychosis. It usually first emerges between the ages of 15 to 30. So it's not too surprising. And I think it's important that that we are going to be talking to a special guest today about their lived experience, because the stats also say that recovery is a lot more likely if psychotic episodes are treated early. So the earlier we get there with the right treatment, the more likely that someone who is suffering from psychosis is to recover, which is really important. And I think we're going to have a great chat today with our special guest, who is Hazel from the Reality Tourist podcast. Let's bring her in. We have Hazel with us today. Welcome, Hazel. We're so happy to have you with us on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself uh, for our listeners at home? Uh, so, yeah, I'm Hazel. I absolutely hate doing introductions. I I genuinely <laughs> never know what on earth to say. And I've got schizoaffective disorder, so that's probably important to get out there right towards the beginning. <laughs> I mainly do a lot of mental illness campaigning. I'm currently doing a lot of neurodivergent campaigning as well because I did neuroscience at university. I started training as a doctor, but then I got ill, so I didn't actually become a doctor. I got about maybe three or four months into graduate medicine, then I ended up in hospital. So that wasn't fun. <laughs> I then trained to be a teacher, and then I got ill again, so that went away. I then trained to be a joiner, and then I got ill again. And currently, I don't have a job because... I was ill very recently and now I'm okay. So, yeah. <laughs> but you're studying at the minute, right? Oh, yeah. I am. Yeah, I'm um, with the Open University at the moment doing forensic psychology because I like learning. And I don't know, psychology seems a bit more broad than neuroscience. I think I went a bit too narrow the first time around. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I find the rest of the body really boring. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel that. You're also a fellow podcaster. Yes. Yeah, I have my own podcast uh, called Reality Tourists which focuses on psychosis and other SMI sort of topics. And basically, I interview people who've got experience of psychosis or written a book about psychosis or have family members with psychosis, bipolar disorder, and someone with DID on recently. So, yeah, that's that's what I do. <laughs> what does SMI stand for? I can never remember if it's serious or severe. It's one or the other, mental illness. So it's things like bipolar, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, etc etc and for our listeners can you tell us what DID means oh that is disassociative identity disorder which is basically what people used to call multiple personalities mm. um it's a bit yeah it's a that's a very outdated term but yeah the new yeah. name is DID thank you Hazel you mentioned in your introduction that you have an SMI diagnosis I was wondering if you want to tell us about your journey and how the, the different kind of perceptions of yourself have changed throughout the journey and treatment and becoming ill again and becoming well again and how that journey has been for you um long <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I'm 35 now I'm almost 36 actually that's scary and I think I was 19 or 20 when I first became ill, ill. 
because I'd had like you know low level symptoms before that when I when I look back I mean they weren't noticed at the time but <clears throat> if I look back now I was probably about 16 when I had my first delusion so yeah I got firstly properly ill when I was about 19 or 20 somehow I still managed my degree I have absolutely no idea how I managed that because I was having hallucinations I was very bulimic at the time as well and to be honest that was taking a hell of a toll on my body <laughs> I did go see mental health people during my degree for my eating disorder, and they never noticed anything else going on. In fact, they thought I had an anxiety disorder. I then started graduate medicine. That maybe three or four months in. I don't actually remember what happened, but anyway, I ended up, ended up in hospital. And that's when they first noticed that there was something going on. But they still didn't, like, clock that it was psychosis. They thought all sorts of things. They thought I had depression. They thought I had anxiety. They thought... They thought I had BPD at one point. I think that's still on my record, actually. I'm trying to get rid of it. It's so sticky. I said the stickiest of the sort. <laughs> so I think I was 25 first time that they actually realised that it was psychosis going on because I had a auditory hallucination that's almost constant, to be honest. And he's called Nigel now. He didn't have a name back then. And he talks to me almost all the time. He's like, he stood behind me. When I'm ill, I believe that he's sort of like my handler and he is telling me what to do and I come from another universe and I'm here to save you all and... It's all very grandiose. I don't really have the whole paranoid thing that people think of. Uh, but when I'm not ill, he's just there as like a narrator. But yeah, I was about 25 when I first realised that something wasn't right, properly. And I first started going to psychotics. And that was amazing, to be perfectly honest. I, I mean, antipsychotics are horrible. I'm not going to say that they're magic or anything. They are awful medication. But it may be able to think more clearly. And actually, like, have a life. And I managed to do teacher training. And then I moved house. And that was a bad idea because I didn't get registered with a GP again. So I went off the medication, like, you know, completely cold turkey. And then I had my rebound psychosis. Now, rebound psychosis is when you come off the meds too fast. It's not the reintroduction of the original illness. It's more like a side effect of coming off the medication. And for me, the rebound psychosis was very different. Because normally I have grandiose delusions and all this sort of stuff. And the rebound was very paranoid delusions. And I was living in a bedsit in London at the time and I didn't leave the bedsit for months. I mean, like, this is horrible to admit, but I was using a bottle as a toilet because I wouldn't even leave my room to go to the toilet type level of I would not leave my room. And no one noticed because I didn't really have a social life. I believed that my ex who was dead was stalking me. I wouldn't, oh, it was awful. And that lasted maybe four or five months. And then I moved house again because I was running away and got back on medication. Then I came off medication again. <laughs> Spoiler alert, don't come off medication. I was fine for like three, four years. Like there was, there was nothing, no symptoms at all, other than maybe a low level anxiety and the odd bit of yeah. like, not quite depression, but, you know, low mood. And then in 2020, it all came, well, at the end of 2019, it all came back and I lost my job. And then COVID happened, and that became part of the delusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm now getting towards the point where I'm kind of stable again, and I might be going back to work at some point. But, yeah, it's been a long journey with a lot of ups and downs and confusion. <laughs> I was wondering if your campaigning work is somehow related to the job insecurity and the kind of life and social context that it creates for someone that is experiencing severe mental illness and how that creates, you know, financial instability, 
potentially instability in terms of where someone lives, their community, how they're perceived by their family and friends and how that could be like a really dangerous cocktail for someone. Yeah, and instability and recovery. Yeah, they, 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 they're not, they don't go together. Like, I think it's because I'm now more stable in my life that I've become more stable in my brain. I don't do that much campaigning myself in that area. I do a little bit about um, employment because I'm part of a local group called York Ending Stigma. That's all about mental health and mental illness stigma. And so we do a bit of work with employers and such on that topic. And they've got their own podcast that we've had a whole series of employment-related episodes that I was on. Most of what I do, to be honest, is actually working with services and is like co-designing services. And I'm on the steering book group for the local hospital. I've gone into the hospital and done talks on self-harm. I've done talks to North Yorkshire Police on the same topic. Um, I'm currently in a sort of small film that we did last year about suicide prevention, where there's a few of us who have all got experience, and then we talk about our stories, I suppose, and just try yeah. to humanise the topic, and then we do little Q&As with people about it. So a lot of what I do is essentially just talking about my own experiences and explaining what bits went wrong and what things could have been better. Yeah. Does that make sense? Also, I think I can talk doctor, so it's quite... Good yeah. that I ended up talking to the hospital because <laughs> a lot of your cat talk doctors. <laughs> I do think it's extremely important work. It's it's yeah. a recurrent topic when we talk about mental health that you know professionals need to hear how it feels like and how you know things can be improved from the perspective of people who are actually like going through the system, experiencing it, facing the difficulties and hearing how things can be improved like for the actual people who need the improvements. And I was wondering actually since you do that like so often, is there anything that you feel that you're kind of repeating over and over again when you do these sort of <laughs> presentations and you know like what's the thing that you feel like you keep telling people that they need to know about to improve the situation for people like you? I would say it's probably three main things. One of them is that no one ever thinks about accessibility. There's a lot mm. of people with physical disabilities who also have mental health or mm -hmm. mental illness issues. And there's nothing really catered to them. So I've done work recently on the crisis line, because it's a phone line. If you're deaf, if you go non-verbal, this is useless to you. If you've got an anxiety disorder, it can be useless. If you're autistic, it's useless. So, yeah, and then they always give you advice like, go for a walk. What if you can't go for a walk? Like, physically can't. Have a bath. What if you physically cannot do that? Um, a lot of the buildings that we get told to go to are not physically accessible. And, um, yeah, so I, I do also do a lot of work with the York Disability Rights Forum. So, like, I might as well have a piece of paper now that just says accessibility that I just hold up in meetings. <laughs> I say it that often, it's ridiculous. It always seems to be an afterthought. Yeah. You don't think about these things if you don't have to face the challenge. But for those of us who are experiencing those challenges or disabilities, it's a nightmare. Number two is the threshold required to get care. I mean, it is just, I, I understand the funding issues. I understand that there's, you know, service limitations and there's oh, the services are overwhelmed i totally get that but in my opinion if we were to improve community care and if we were to like lower the threshold so people could get earlier care people wouldn't get to the point of crisis and would save money Ooh, in the long 100%. run community care has got to be cheaper than hospitalization yeah i know my red flags i know when i'm getting ill but if i go to the community mental health team or if i go to my gp and i say look these are my red flags it's happening help they kind of go, all right, 
come back in a week when you're actually ill. I mean, it's not so much now because I've managed to get stuff in place for me personally, but the general, I mean, the early intervention team won't hurt me because I've got too much insight. <laughs> but you have the, as you say, insight and knowledge and ability to advocate for yourself after yeah. a long journey. And a lot of people won't. A lot of people won't even have the language. It is very reactive, though. It is yeah. very reactive care. It's very much wait yeah. until it gets to, like, breaking point, and then we'll deal with it. It has to get to a point where it's dire for them to actually get any help, rather than proactive with it, rather than reactive. Yeah. And we'd be in a much better place. Yeah, that's what I think. I have mixed responses when I say this in meetings. <laughs> <laughs> can imagine. And the third thing is just different services need to talk to each other. Like primary and secondary don't seem to talk. Um, CAMS and kids mental health team don't seem to talk. Like when someone gets to 17 or 18, quite often they just fall into this gap because they don't get taken on by the adult team properly. Or if they do get taken on by the adult team, they're not told the irrelevant information they need from the children's team. Um, you get discharged to your GP and they don't get told any of the stuff you need to know, they need to know. So secondary and primary aren't talking to each other. I have such a saga with my medication every month because primary and secondary don't talk to each other. So yeah, it's just, there's a communication breakdown and I think that that really needs seeing too. But once again, I understand that there's staffing issues and funding issues and the time issues and everything else. But I think that taking the time to communicate would actually solve a lot of problems that would free up other areas. But it's a hard sell, unfortunately. <laughs> Just for the people that don't uh, know the difference, primary care, things like your GPs, uh, people that you can go and see near to your home, uh, and they're usually not in hospitals, and kind of specialist consultations and that kind of thing is considered secondary care. So we're talking about GPs communicating with psychiatrists and then communicating with, I don't know, community occupational therapists that specialize in mental health that they need, need to communicate with a clinical psychologist. The, the, that communication never seems to happen. So people end up having to repeat their story or trying to win their case every time they see someone new rather than their history being taken with them electronically if we only had the internet. <laughs> Bouncing off of what you were saying, right? It's like we have the internet, but it's like they don't they don't use it or they don't access it and they don't like leave. It's like, they're always like, I'm making a note for this. And it's like, who is the note for? As a patient, I can imagine how, especially in the context of mental health, it can be exhausting to have to almost take charge of your own notes. And you have to be like, okay, so I saw this psychiatrist, was this doctor, and they said that, and I experienced that, and these were my symptoms at that point, and that's what I experienced, and then I was put on that medication, and was it right for me? Yes, no, why? Like, all these things, and you you don't even always have all the information or all the notes from the doctor, because even if you ever have, like, request access to your medical records, not everything is centralized, and I just can't imagine that anyone thinks that a setup where you put that responsibility on the patient when they need you know like long-term care and care from like different teams and different health workers how is a system like that designed to be helpful for the patient it's really not yeah I was gonna say it would be great to hear for you how you feel about this because one of the things I hate the most about having to go through the system in regards to my mental health is repeating my story or like repeating why I'm there and having to tell it 
over and over and it's always the same thing because every time you meet someone new they just like you said there's no communication they don't have the notes and so it's like you literally have to start from like the first block and that could be 10 15 years ago for people it could be even further back than that and so it's like having to relive everything every time you speak to someone like this is the situation this is my journey just to get them on the same page as you I don't know if your experience has been similar, Hazel. Yeah, it's even worse when you move house. <laughs> oh, my God. Like when I first got elected, I lived in Aberdeen. And since then, I've lived in London, Newcastle, Hartlepool, uh, Newcastle again, and York. So every time I move, I've got to do it all again. And it's great fun. Even when I move, like, I've, within York, I've moved a couple of times, just within the city. And it means I move GP practice. Or I move, mm. at the moment, I've moved from one council area to another by, like, a mile. So it's a complete and utter minefield, and I don't understand why they can't just talk to each other. It's very frustrating. When I got ill again in 2019, it was 2020 by the time I saw healthcare, and they were like, so what medication have you been on in the past? And I'm like, I don't remember all their stupid names. <laughs> yeah. I used to teach pharmacology, and I can't remember their names. What chance has anyone else got? <laughs> yeah, so obviously... Juliet and Carolina are still in the research space. I'm kind of still in the research space, but not in an academic setting. And as someone who is living this kind of rather than specifically focusing on researching it, what's your perspective on the neurobiology and the science kind of behind the manifestation of psychosis, kind of how it comes about? I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the sciencey bits, so... Well, I'm biased, aren't I? Having done neuroscience as an undergrad, I'm a bit of a freak. I am one of those people who actually, like, reads the research papers for fun. Um, As to. (laughs) Oh, good, good. I'm just not just me. Yeah, but you have a reason. I don't. I'm just bored. (laughs) Personally, I like the sort of neurobiology sort of stance. I've read a lot of the research. I know that there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, there's differences in the brain, but they might be caused by the medication. So, yeah, we do, we do need more longitudinal studies and a sort of early presentation studies. I get that. But personally, I believe it is primarily a TVS or brain disease that can have secondary triggers such as environment, trauma, etc. I have this argument a lot on Twitter because I don't have any trauma pre-existing to my illness. I've got trauma since because, yeah, you take a lot of risks during a manic episode and stuff happens. But... Prior to my illness, other than growing up autistic and ADHD without knowing it, there's not really anything that you'd classify as trauma. So I don't think that mine was trauma-based at all. And I do know that I have relatives, not really close relatives, but I do have blood relatives who have had mental illnesses of some sort. We don't know what they were because this was back in the times when they just sort of got locked away, like in the 60s and stuff. So I don't know exactly what they had, but... I suspect it might have been schizophrenia, given the descriptions I've been given. So, yeah, personally, I do genuinely believe that the medical model, I suppose, that it is. And also medication works for me. So maybe that makes me biased as well. My um, illness does seem to be very treatable. I I do get breakthrough symptoms. I, I don't think I'll ever get free of them. But when I'm on the antipsychotics and the SSRIs and everything else that I'm bloody on, it's less and I am vaguely functional as a human being and surely to a degree if it wasn't if there wasn't a biological basis the drugs wouldn't work now with modern antipsychotics where we kind of i mean we don't know exactly how they work but we know that they work on the dopamine we know about the different pathways of dopamine we know how those pathways could be related to our symptoms so 
I don't know, personally, I like the biological model, but I'm aware that that does not make me very popular within the lived experience space because everyone's like, oh, it's trauma. Oh, it's not an illness. Oh, why are you saying your brain is defective? And it's like, the brain's an organ, just like any other part of the body. Why can't it go wrong? And I'm fine with my brain being wrong. That doesn't bother me. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm defective. It's just, if I had diabetes, I wouldn't say, oh, I've got a broken pancreas or whatever. <laughs> it's a very divisive topic, I think. Um, but personally, I'm on the biological side. <laughs> it's interesting that you say it doesn't make you popular in the lived experience space, because as someone with lived experience, but also I'm on the same team as you when it comes to like the biology and like looking at, you know, what the science says. I think it's important to take both into account and for everyone listening that everyone's journey is different. Everyone's causes for what they're going through is different. And I think looking at the big picture is really important. So bringing those two together and kind yeah. of finding like the sweet spot. Every person is different. Everyone's experiences are different. And the way their mental illness or conditions manifest is different as well. Our own experience isn't all of it, right? There seems to be a a false binary within the lived experience space where, well, we've been professionals as well, especially psychologists. Um, well, maybe I'm just biased by Twitter because Twitter has this argument <laughs> a lot. But there seems to be this false binary where there's people who are like, it's all trauma. And there's people who are like, it's all biology. And I believe the truth is probably somewhere in between. But we can, can't yes. seem to get those people yeah. to talk to each other without just shouting insults. <laughs> we'll never find out. I, I know that you've had a few different diagnoses over the years. And, and now you seem to have had a diagnosis that aligns better with your experience, which is schizoaffective disorder. Is that correct? Yeah, that's complicated as well. Because technically, <laughs> my diagnosis was removed from me. Because apparently, we don't treat diagnoses anymore. We just treat symptoms. Um, but I still identify with it because it's the only one that's ever fit. <laughs> yes, I understand that. Um, and um, what do you think is the biggest misrepresentation of your diagnosis? Or what do people expect when you talk about certain diagnoses and how that's so removed from, from actual real-life experience? Well, to be honest, with it being schizoaffective disorder, no one's ever heard of it. No one knows what it is. I was going to say, it's, it's more but, niche, um, right? Yeah. I, I heard about it for the first time maybe three months ago on a podcast. Right, It was yeah. even through my research. <laughs> yeah, that's my main problem, is no one knows what it is. People know what schizophrenia is. I mean, they're generally wrong, <laughs> but they have an idea what it is. People know what bipolar is. They're generally wrong, but they've, got, they've heard yes. the word. You know, they've heard the term. Yeah. They, know what, they know it's an illness, at least. But when I say it, I think they see the schizo, and then they don't really know what the effective bit means, because that's proper psychology talk, isn't it? No one, no one says effective when they mean mood. <laughs> really, yep. Yeah, they think you're very affectionate, which is probably also true. Yeah, no one even knows what it is. And then they Google it and... Listeners, don't Google people's diagnosis. <laughs> what comes up is not good. <laughs> Just exactly. ask them what's going on. So yeah, people Google it and then they get... I don't, they seem to just get these assumptions that I'm somehow dangerous. And oh, I'm not dangerous. But yeah, people just assume I'm dangerous. They assume I'm reliable. They just they make all these assumptions without talking to me. And it's extremely frustrating. I can't think of any media portrayals of schizoaffective disorder. Um, there's quite a few of schizophrenia. And I think they probably just think it's the same thing, to be honest. It's funny how people think that they see someone, they'll say something like, oh, she's all this up and down. She's happy and then she's angry. She's so bipolar. Or they go, they think that a personality disorder is like DID. And there are all these misconceptions about what diagnoses mean. 
It's so frustrating. People call the weather bipolar in, in England. Like, oh, the weather's oh, yeah. so bipolar. Oh, yeah. What's that about? Right? the weather be bipolar? What the, what the Oh, because it's sunny and then it's raining. And that's what they think bipolar is, right? It's like, oh, you're happy one minute and then you're sad the next. That, that annoys not... me. People thinking that manic just means happy. <laughs> I wish it just meant happy. <laughs> Or like they think of that scene from a film where a woman is up all night in her satin gown, making a big painting or like reorganizing the kitchen cupboards. And that's it. That's mania. Oh, um, I wish my mania was like that. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant. In a satin robe, no. always, with your oh, hair satin flowing. Ro- I don't even... Maybe that's where I've gone wrong. And it's go buy a satin robe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw... What's that series called? Shameless. One of the siblings becomes bipolar and he goes through having phases of like mania and, you know, then really like low mood depression. And I can't say for sure whether that's like accurate and whether people who actually have like bipolar disorder think it's more accurate. But at least they didn't represent it as being pretty and happening like, you know, one day then the next is like these months long phases and the mania wasn't depicted as being pretty at all. It was a lot more like raw, I think. Um, So not sure if it's closer to reality because it's probably still, you know, very like... Hollywood-esque. Yeah. I want to pick up on something you said, Hazel. You said that the diagnosis doesn't seem to be as relevant to your care, not from your perspective, but from the the point of healthcare professionals. And they want to address symptoms rather than a diagnosis. Now, I would think in my naivety that that's actually a good thing, that it's about how you cope with life and what your experiences are rather than something that is written on a piece of paper that depends on someone's interpretation of your experience. I recently spent three months in India working in a psychiatric hospital and uh, I was in a specific department where they used, okay, this is not applicable here, completely different context, but they used uh, yoga for severe mental illness and people were placed in different groups according to their symptoms and not according to their diagnosis, uh, which I thought it was something very Interesting. So do you think that treating someone from for symptoms rather than di- their diagnosis is actually harmful? Um, what's your experience? I think it depends on the person. Like some people like this new model, and that's fine. That is great for them. That's fantastic. I don't, because I like to have the diagnosis as almost like a reality check. It's like when I, I regularly believe I'm not ill, and when I can look at this word and be like, no, I am ill. It's something to hold on to. It's actually tangible. But also, the world isn't ready for not having diagnoses yet. You wouldn't have someone with a broken leg and be like, "Oh, they've got their their, their leg hurts, and that's it." They wouldn't. You know, you would. You give them. You'd say they got broken whatever bone it was. So, when you got to work with the DWP or access to work or employers, etc., 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 they work with diagnoses. So when the teams take the word off you, it places them with what's called a formulation. Now, formulation takes ages to do. Mine took six weeks, where you meet with someone each week, and they basically take your entire life history. And you can't, if you went to then go to get a job, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've got a mental illness, I need some adjustments, and they went, oh, what do you have? You don't want to hand over your entire life history. So, personally, I like to have a diagnosis, but that might be once again because I've got a science background, and I like to categorize stuff. I think as well, the problem problem we've got is with the Minister Recovery Model, which is great if you've got something that you can recover from. It's great if you've got something 
that was reactive, it's great if you've got something that, you know, the medication or the therapies or whatever will make you completely functional and you will never have a relapse. It's not so great when you're someone like me who, on a regu- on an annual basis now, gets discharged only to be re-referred. You know, last time it was six weeks. Last time I lasted six weeks before I got re-referred because I called the police on myself because I thought I'd murdered someone. I had not murdered someone. Spoiler alert, it was a delusion. But um, <laughs> That's good to hear. It's just... In and out, in and out, constantly, back and forth and back and forth, and it gets very frustrating. I think that there's too much of this trying to lump everyone together now, which is, once again, a controversial opinion. I think what you said earlier about it reminds you that actually, yes, there's a reason that I'm taking treatment. I can really relate to that because for the longest time, I would go through, like, prior to starting my own medication, every day I'd just be like, there's nothing wrong with you. Why can't you do this kind of thing? Yeah. And and your brain turns against you. Like, you're just making this up. There's nothing actually wrong with you because I didn't have official diagnosis. So, like, I can relate to that. I think it definitely depends on the person. And it's not fair that you'd have to expose your entire life story to an employer. Yeah, I think I might be cynical as well because I've been sent to far too many support groups where it's quite obviously aimed at anxiety and depression. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's brilliant that these support groups exist. But when they go around the room and everyone's talking and then I sit there and then I sort of go, yeah, I hear voices and the entire room backs away from me. It's not a very nice experience. (laughs) I had a, a really positive experience the other day when someone saw me with a badge and they told me about their experience with schizophrenia. And uh, it was someone that I knew from my day-to-day life, an acquaintance, you know, someone that worked somewhere that I go to quite a lot. And it was so refreshing for someone to just be open and wanting to share without the fear of what the reaction would be uh, or without having to be in a specific context. You know, he was just telling me about himself and he mentioned his diagnosis and how his symptoms are now. And he even told me about his medication and, you know, the the relationship carried on without that being like a thing. And I think we need to move towards that. That's exactly what Hazel is doing. You know, you're talking about your experience openly with us. And it's, it's important that people are doing this. And like Juliet said earlier, the work you're doing is incredibly important. And you might go through phases where you're like insecure about it or just not feeling like it's actually having the impact you think it is. But it 100% is, even if it's just one person who feels better hearing your story. So we really appreciate you sharing with us what you've experienced. It can be hard sometimes because you feel like you're not making any progress. But then you have every now and again, you have someone come up to you. Like when we did suicide prevention film we've been doing, we did a screening last year. Afterwards, this woman came up to me in tears and she was like, my son's got ADHD and he's been suicidal and I've never seen anything about this before. And I mean, I felt awkward as hell, but it was really nice to like have someone obviously impacted by it in a good way because they asked me like how advice on how to handle it and stuff. And it was just, yeah, it was really nice. <laughs> Those are the moments I live for. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I was going to say, yeah. I think these are probably like the, the best moments to be honest, where, you know, you actually feel like you touched someone, even if it was just for like a moment. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much, Hazel. Thank you for sharing with us and educating us. And hopefully our listeners are going to come out of this conversation a bit more aware and they'll be able to spread the message as well. Well, Thank you very much for having me. It's been been very fun. fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you. I feel like I've gained a better understanding. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. 
everyone, it's Melissa. This episode of At the Back of Your Mind was recorded on the 12th of May 2023, featuring our hosts Carolina, Juliet and Mariam with special guest Hazel Kerrison. Be sure to visit inspiredthemind.org forward slash at the back of your mind for more episodes, transcripts, social media and contact information. A big thank you to our editors Anushka Abel, Julia Lombardo and Melissa Coase and our editor-in-chief Professor Carmine Pariante for helping us bring this podcast to the air. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.